Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hello, Fintech Beat listeners. I'm Amaya Scarity, partner at QED Investors, back on the pod today to take a tour outside the neighborhood of Fintech and into the great big world of SaaS. SaaS is an acronym that stands for Software as a Service. And while the world of public tech stocks is defined by consumer-facing juggernauts like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google, the world of venture capital is defined more than anything else by a North Star of SaaS. Companies you might not have heard of, like Splunk, Autodesk, ResMed, MongoDB. SaaS is a technical innovation. It is the software that flows to all of us over the cloud, but also a business model innovation where customers have to keep paying as long as they use the service. And as our guest explains, recurring software revenue is now recognized as simply a great way to generate tons of cash for investors. In fintech, the booms and busts might best be described as debates about whether fintechs are really like SaaS or more like banks, insurance companies, and incumbent financial services providers they are trying to disrupt. For perspective on all this, today's guest is Jason Lemkin, a multi-time founder of SaaS companies whose current project is to bring the secrets of SaaS to the world as the founder and CEO of Saster, the world's largest community for business software. I've often found myself emailing Jason questions only to find that the answer is in a blog post that he and his team at Saster have already written. Jason's style is focused on tough love, and his content consistently emphasizes that startup life is very hard, but not mysterious. He covers topics like how to hire the best people, how to recognize when you've made a mistake, whether your company is really growing fast enough to be venture-backed, and what struggling CEOs often do versus what they should do. Most of all, Jason is an enthusiast, passionate about the value of startups and software, who organizes his life to make that world more accessible and more successful. Jason? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super, super excited. So let's start at the beginning. Our listeners are mostly fintech focused and they're often very policy focused. So as I said at the beginning, there's both a technological and a business model innovation here. But what makes SaaS so great? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it took a while. I've been a SaaS entrepreneur since 2005, since the earliest days. And SaaS really did not come into fashion until maybe 2019. So it took like 14 years for people to get excited. And I remember Aaron Levy, who's CEO of Box, maybe some of your watchers and listeners have have learned. He came to our first big community event, SaaS January 2015, one week after Box's IPO, one week in 2015. And I asked him, do the public markets understand recurring revenue in SaaS models? And he paused and he's like... Well, some do. They're getting there. <laughs> so it was a it was a rough road, and um, these softwares or service models, these SaaS models, for many years, the public markets viewed them with skepticism, much like the public markets used Amazon models with skepticism for many years. Salesforce, which is the biggest leader in software as a service, um, you know, they're worth over two hundred billion on thirty billion in revenue or so. Um, the markets viewed them with suspicion. Will they ever really get profitable? Are, do the, are these software mo- service models so sales and marketing heavy, so support heavy, 
that the models just don't really work, that these companies will go bankrupt. People thought Box would go bankrupt in 2015. They couldn't be more wrong, right? Um, fast forward to today, you know, Box is over a billion in revenue. It's, it's, um, it's profitable. Um, in the last year, almost all of the cloud and SaaS leaders actually have become, if not profitable, very positive operating margins, 20% or more. And everyone has fallen in love with this model, finally. It just took 14 years. And and it really distills down to two things. And it's very interesting for fintech, which we'll talk about, because fintech has some overlap with it. And then there's some areas where they're, they're not alike. Um, but the real magic of the SaaS model is having very high logo retention, over 90%, that over 90% of your customers stay each year, and that your revenue, your net revenue retention, your net dollar retention is ideally over 120%. That for every dollar you have this year, your customers buy a dollar and twenty next year, and compound that over four years, your business is doubled, right? And you can keep doing that, and you go out over eight years and sixteen years, and you build you build something pretty pretty darn good. And um, people have fallen in love with these high dollar retention, high logo retention models. And if you combine that with high gross margins, right? And this is where there's a disconnect with fintech time. You know, so, traditionally software is amazing. Like Adobe, almost 50% of every dollar Adobe gets becomes pure cash, right? In the old days, you'd burn it on a DVD, you'd buy it. The, the DVD costs like 50 cents to burn or the CD-ROM and you'd sell it for 50 bucks. And the, it was an amazing business model, right? So this is all 80% gross margins, 120% revenue retention, 90% logo. Like those three is just, it's an annuity, right? It's an annuity and the public markets love it. And when things got really good in fintech and everyone got excited because, you know, fintech's even bigger than business software, right? It's it's the first or second largest segment of our economy. People started viewing or pretending that a lot of fintechs had this trifecta, that they had this 90% logo. 120% revenue retention, and worst of all, 80% gross margins. And people for years during the boom, 2020, 2021, would give the same multiples, would view a fintech with 30% or 20% or 40% gross margins. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's not, It's just a different model. But they would give them the same value as a software company where, you know, at the end of the day, five engineers can write something that a million people can use, right? It's just not the same when there's right. costs, right? It's not the same yeah. as even a Stripe or an Adyen, and everything got bloated and confused, and people funded fintechs like they were 80% margin SaaS companies, and we're bearing the, the price of that in many cases today. Yeah. I mean, this, at some level, part of what you're saying is revolutionary, but also just business basics, right? Which is yeah. these SaaS companies went from like selling software one time to just taking money from customers every month or every quarter, or every year. And, and then the other thing, you know, this is why venture loves software is that the, you know, the code does the work. And so you yeah. put those two things together and all of a sudden, like a bunch of cash comes out the other end. And so there's this, and then you can choose what to do with the cash. And I think this is where people got confused where they said, wait, but these software companies keep taking that cash. And instead of giving it to investors uh, back, they you know, put it into new R&D, they put it into acquisitions, they put it into other things. But at, at some level, this is the core thing, which is like capitalism, such as it is, is kind of back in public markets. And so there's a real distinction to be made between companies that sell, you know, take money from customers and turn it into cash flow and companies yes. that take money from customers and turn it into anything else. Yeah, it's been night and day. It's it's crazy how much more efficient 
the leaders in software as a service and cloud companies have gotten the last just in one year. The mar public markets forced everyone to get more efficient, right? Shareholder of activists forced Salesforce to get more efficient or to have the board be overrun by activists. It's same almost happened to Box. They all got more efficient. And like one of the most extreme examples, maybe your listeners know less, but a, a super successful public SaaS company is called Monday.com. They do project management software. They're at 700 million revenue growing 50% growing 50%, okay, to SMBs, very SMB. And uh, until last year, they were pretty relatively inefficient, right? They had negative 20% operating margins and the market said no more. They said no more. Now they're in one year, they went from negative 20% to positive 20%. One year, wow. one year. And I, and and it, it was actually pretty simple how they did it. HubSpot did the same thing. Salesforce did the same thing. MongoDB did the same thing. And basically what everyone did was um, they froze head froze headcount for a year. They didn't lay everybody off. If they did layoffs, these companies they were they were replacements, right? They'd lay off ten percent of people, but then they replaced them with engineers that were AI engineers or better people. No, no one really cut headcount in these public companies, but they just kept the headcount flat. And mathematically, if you keep your headcount flat and you still grow fifty percent like Monday or thirty percent at two billion like HubSpot, you in one year, you know, you get wildly more efficient by keeping the headcount flat and so far, it worked. Like these companies grew just about as quickly with the same number of human beings. And so that's a meta issue for the next couple of years. Will we stay efficient? Will we stay in this efficient world? Because we proved at least for a year it worked. Yeah. And this is, I mean, you know, one of the things reaching from here to the macro, right? There's a reason why the macro story kind of has stayed pretty strong, even as the tech story has, you know, taken a lot of pain. Because yeah. the underlying economy continues to do pretty well, right? And I, I assume that a lot of what we're seeing in these um, SaaS companies and cloud companies is that they're still benefiting from that macro, even as they take some of that pain from a, a market's perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, the tough lesson, it's especially interesting for, for folks that do venture investments like you and I do. The tough lesson in SaaS in particular, it was the most extreme lesson of my career was, you know, I hate this term, but vitamins versus painkillers, okay? Mm -hmm. And I always forget which one's a vitamin or which one's a painkiller. But the point of the, of, this, of, of the tritism is that when times are tougher, people stop buying stuff that is nice to have, but they don't really need, right? Uh, but they still buy what they have to have. And as an entrepreneur, I never found that to be true. I never really found that you could have a successful software company that wasn't necessary. Like I just, I just, it was so hard to sell any product back in the day to convince even 10 companies to buy you a hundred. You had to be a painkiller or whatever it is because no one, no one stays up at night surfing the web, trying to buy business software. It just doesn't happen. So I actually didn't believe this existed, but I was wrong because what we saw in 2022 was we saw sometimes no dip in growth of folks that were tied to direct macro, right? Like I have an investment in, in the restaurant SaaS space. Restaurants have done pretty well, right? And they have a significant fintech component. They, they've grown like a weed, right? Um, I've had others that have a slight impact. And then you see some that went to zero last year. They literally went from like 100% growth during lockdown, during 2020-21 or post-lockdown to zero, Right. And that's because companies just said, look, we're going to tighten our belt a little bit, like like inflation's up, there are some issues, and just cut the crap we don't really need. And it actually happened. Every CI, Everyone from CIOs to CROs to, to, to CFOs sat down and said, look, guys, we have 200 cloud apps in our company, typically 200, 300. There's got to yeah. be 20 we don't need. 
You guys get around the table. You guys go in the conference room or on Zoom, and you come back with thirty names. And um, it was brutal. The nice to haves. There's some. They just got cut left and right, right, brutally, like overnight. So in in fintech, I mean, financial services is even more cyclical. And as you talked about, right, if if you're actually doing lending, if you're actually you know underwriting insurance risk, if you're underwriting payments, you know, there's fraud, there's, there's real costs that come out of that uh, gross margin. But there are other aspects where finance more than anything is something people actually need, right? If you don't have access to your money, um, it's pretty big deal. So from where from where you sit, how do you view fintech? Is it, you know, just a classic, well, if it's not software, forget about it? Or are there aspects of, of fintech or, or the way your businesses interact with the financial system that are really interesting to you? Well, let me give you a higher level answer, then I'll talk about me if it's helpful. The, the higher level one is I think um, the age of tourists, tourist investors coming to fintech may be over. Okay. And we all, we all know about FTX and all these other ones, but I will tell you, every, every VC I know has more than one story of fraud in their portfolio, more than one, not FTX level, not Sam Blankman Freed. Everyone has fraud. Now, sometimes it's light fraud. Okay. Sometimes it's claiming something's recurring revenue that wasn't. Sometimes it's conflating margins. Sometimes it was exaggerating those margins. Um, It wasn't always, you know, Photoshop the bank accounts level of fraud, but it's all over the place. And people got burned the most in fintech, in my experience, because the margins were lower and the burn rates were higher and they got burned. Tourists got burned. Tourists, they came in and said, wow, you went from one to five million in one year, right? Well, if it was all by financing crappy mortgage products or crappy insurance or not understanding, not understanding the risk profile of the money you're sending out, of course you go from one to five, right? Of course you go from one to 10. And um, I think there is the most wildfires and the most fraud across venture in tourists to fintech, okay? Um, Not my experience, but for me, my reaction is I did some experiments in lower gross margins. I probably won't go back. I won't go back. Um, There are, like, I'm the second largest investor in a company called Revenue Cat that automates mobile subscriptions. We could talk about whether that's really fintech or not. It's fintech-ish. Um, but it's 80% margins. It's software, right? To manage mobile subscriptions, right? That I feel very comfortable at some of the intersections of consumer and business and fintech. But do I want to be a tourist again? I think almost all VCs other than AI don't want to be tourists, but they all want to be AI tourists right now. They're all willing to invest vast amount of money as AI tourists, but I think they're done. They're done as fintech tourists. And I was talking, one of my LPs is wildly successful. One of my LPs. For folks that don't know, limited partners, those are our, our investors, right, that, that QED and Saster has. Wildly successful LP. And he's got this fintech ish one that was very macro impacted, right, that was super hot. And he, he's got to go in and run the thing. He's like, there's fraud everywhere. This was a hot one that you don't even know there's fraud at. Everything was was light fraud. It's all fake. The revenue's there. It's gone. It was barely there. So my point is the tourists are just... They'll, they'll come back, right? They will come back. They will come back when Stripe IPOs and other things happen. But I think the tourists are going to take a pause for a couple of years. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's it's probably right. And, you know, we joke at QED, you know, the easy part is giving away money. The hard part is getting it back. And when you're a lending yeah. business, you measure your growth and how much money you gave away um, and yeah. how long it takes you to get it back. Um, 
So I think that's right. Now, you know, you know, when we look at this, I think a lot of the the dynamic is around things like, you know, compliance, regulation, policy, and you know, really testing that much more assiduously. Do you understand the business that you're in? But I think there's another piece, which I'm sure you have experienced with just like controls, right? Do you have a culture? I mean, going to the 200 different cloud infrastructure, right? Do you have controls around how you spend money, how you grow? How do you think about the kind of the grown up part of business building? For startups and scale-ups, having proper proper controls? Yeah, startups and scale-ups. I, I think it has clearly, without question, gotten worse over the last eight to 10 years. Worse. Worse. For a couple of reasons. Um, first, we all used to respect capital more. We all used to respect capital more. I, as a founder, you know, my second startup, you know, which, which you know, which is now part of Adobe called Adobe Sign, which is doing 250 million. We only raised 8 million across two rounds. I offered to give the money back to my investors when, when growth started. We never went to zero or anything, but when, when I wasn't sure I could deliver, I offered to give it back. Stuart Butterfield offered to give the money back before he turned Slack into what is Slack. That, why did we, why did, I mean, I'm no Stuart, but why did we do that? It was respect. It was Stuart saying to Andreessen, hey, I'm not sure I can make you money. That was me saying to my investors, I'm not sure. I don't see that happen today. There is no respect for for capital, and that's one issue. Two, there is, even after what we went through in the downturn of 2022, which was extreme, right, founders remain extremely optimistic about raising future capital at every higher valuation. They, They view... Founders view 2022 as an anomaly that was just a little bump, and we will get back to some version of 2021, right? They all view this, no matter how they think about it. They just don't have the life experience, right? Their life experience, in many cases, was only good times, right? And I think we're back to slightly good times, but they still think it will get easier and better. And so I think that leads to a lackadaisical element. And then the third thing that I see, and this is maybe very specific, is I see founders just waiting way too long to have a true VP of finance or CFO. And I see something which is sort of um, a little bit insidious, which is that a lot of founders today hire a VP of ops instead. They're like, I, I, I don't really know. I don't really need a bean counter VP of finance. I'll hire this McKinsey person or this Bain person that was there for almost 18 months. And I'll make her or him my VP of operations. And they build amazing spreadsheets. You've never seen spreadsheets like this, right? And I see them get companies into wild trouble left and right. Because what this VP of ops person out of McKinsey and or Bain does is let's say let's say we're burning a million dollars a month. We have twenty million in the bank. Okay, um, that's twenty months of runway, right? And and the board right. says, well, we don't like that. That's enough. You know what the McKinsey person does? They tweak the numbers in Q4. Oh well, you know what's going to happen? Well, sales will increase in Q4, and 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 ev- all costs will stay consistent, and burn will go down to five hundred in Q4, and then three hundred, and then if you don't look at the model, it's magic. And and the VP of ops gets up at the board meeting. It's like, oh, we've got seven years of runway. I'm like, oh. And everyone's like, oh, that's terrific. That's terrific, George. <laughs> and the, I find this VP of ops instead of financing, perhaps the most dangerous hire that people make. And these businesses are complicated. And what's happened is, on the one hand, we're much worse at financing controls. On the other hand, we're, it, it's ironic. We're better at instrumentation. We can do cohort yeah. analysis of our customers and we know why they churn and we know where they live and they know where their journey is in our products much better than we did even five years ago. So the ops person helps you run these reports and analytics, 
But it's garbage in, garbage out for for financial models, right? Uh, what do you need? Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you. So, so I just right. controls. Well, we're and, we're um, all hoping for faster growth, Jason. So we'll just yeah. tell the sales reps more growth, guys. More growth, guys. Yeah, and uh, so I, I I do worry that, and I hate it. I hate. And the other related point, maybe the last one is, and I think everyone that's been doing venture while agree with this. And this is one of the parts I hate about investing, is. VCs won't be critical anymore. They won't be critical anymore. When I started as a founder, my first time to say VCs were critical would be a, a vast understatement. Every every meeting, you get your HUD kid cut off. You know, everyone was worried the founders would be replaced by someone in a tweed blazer uh, sitting at uh, the fancy VC office on Sand Hill, just waiting to replace you at any given moment. And um, but now, for a variety of reasons, one, people got lazy. Exits are bigger. Founders go longer. Right? We know the best public. Cloud companies are all run by founders. 90% of the top SaaS public companies are run by founders. And there's a lot of reasons, but VCs will just watch you drive the car off the cliff today. Yeah. They will watch you drive. The, and I'm the only one that ever speaks up, and it's horrible. They'll literally watch you drive your $2 million a month burn rate right off the cliff and maybe make an oblique comment. You know, Jason, have you have you thought a little bit about the burn rate? <laughs> It is. I mean, so there's a lack of control from investors too. It makes it worse. It makes it it makes it worse, right? I mean, we certainly try, and and I think your point about the VP of finance is so critical because in in so many of these startups, you know, look, this is the digital world we live in, right? Like the information we get is from a spreadsheet, and no VC in history has ever reviewed the receipts. And so if you have a real bean counter, then you can trust that spreadsheet and you're getting the real information. If you're just getting a spreadsheet that someone put numbers in, you know, it's pretty hard to tell which pixel is, you know, backed up by a receipt and which pixel is backed up by, you know, someone's typing. But it's definitely, I think, and we we saw this, obviously, you mentioned earlier, right, the, the ones everybody's heard of. But I think especially at the early stages, it can be really hard for investors to get all the way down into the nitty gritty about what's really going on in this business. Yeah, and, and I think, and I think if I think investors in many cases stopped even trying, they they stopped even trying. People did two to three times the investment and the investment pace they did for a while, and people had insane either real or paper returns for about eighteen months. And it just wasn't worth the time, right? And, and investors also, not to get too niche, investors got more comfortable when times were really good with just walking away. Hey, look, if, 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 if you know, we put $20 million into that one, it doesn't work out, no problem, because we got nine IPOs this last month. Like right. 20, they could, investors that used to worry about writing off $5 million would now, you know, if I have to write 20 or $30 million, but the fund's up 8x, it's really, you know, it's just math. Like, um, yeah. and so it all got, it all got worse and it hasn't quite, um, I, I, I don't think founders have fully heard the message. We'll, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Um, but I, I do wish, I do wish there were better controls when I, I feel like a fuddy daddy because in my startups month one, both of them, I had a bean counter. I could never think I had a bean counter checking every nickel and dollar and I sent to my board, um, and people laugh at me for this. Copies of my bank statements. I included it with every investor update. Here's my, you know, I blacked out the the number when someone told me to not have my, you know, my my account number on. But I literally said, I don't want anyone to accuse a nickel of every day. Here's my because you know you can talk about 
profits, losses, schmosses, classes. But what matters for, 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 for a startup is how much cash is in the bank, right? And how much went out the, right. how much went out the door. But I don't see anyone doing that. Your strategy is interesting because Saster is a business. You know, you have one of the biggest, you know, it's the biggest community of, of, of business software. You run big events. But as an investor, yeah. you're highly, highly concentrated. So how do you even, how do you choose at, at these early stages, uh, you know, just uh, four or five investments a year? Yeah, or even if that, well, look, what I've learned, for, for folks that are interesting, what I learned is um, people have a natural, if you've been investing a while and had some success, you'll learn you have a natural insertion point, a natural stage for you, Okay. And for me, I learned it was late seed is ideally the best entry point for me. As an ex-founder, I knew I wasn't smart enough to know if you'd make it with no revenue. Okay. I've done a few of those investments, but only when I knew the people cold, right? And even then, I think you have a 50-50 hit rate is what I've learned. The best people in the world, if you invest in them pre-revenue, you have a 50-50 chance. That's what I've learned. I still wish I'd done more, but I didn't want to have any big losses. So I'm like, okay, I, I need to see. What I want to do is I wanted to find founders that were better than me that were growing at least a little bit faster. And I said, hey, look, if I could have a nine-figure exit back in the day, if you're better than me and growing faster, you got a shot at a 10-figure at a, at a exit. It it's, sounds simple, but it actually, I the biggest mistakes I made was when I deviated from that formula. Okay, so that's, I'm late seed, okay? And how much money do you, how big a check do you need to write late seed? Well, if you do earlier seed, you could write a million or $2 million check for decent ownership. But if it's late seed, you probably got to write a three to four to four and a half million dollar check mathematically. And that led to, uh, you know, I could either like do a million investments and own a percent or like I'd run out of the fund. I could only do three or four of these a year max. Um, and so I think it's just a function of where, what stage you're good at, right? And whether you want to lead or follow. That's the two by two. Like what's your best stage and lead and follow? And they're all... There are a lot of follower funds out there now, right? And um, it just yeah. takes a lot of energy to do 40 investments a year, right? And I want to have big outcomes, right? And um, so if you don't concentrate, you can't have big outcomes. So maybe that's too much information, but that's why I learned that my sweet spot is as close to late seed as I can get. Um, and then I have to lean in and it's very risky to lean in. I, you know, out of I have a couple of funds that are like 70 million. Writing a $4 million check out of a $70 million fund is actually pretty risky. Yeah. It's pretty risky, right? I mean, how what percent is that? That's over 5% of the fund into a check. And the founders are like, oh, that's a small check today. But and maybe it is a small check today. But if you look at fund mechanics, like a lot of those have to work out or you're blowing 5% of the fund out before you even get to reserves or other issues. So you have to have at least half of them have to really work, right? That's the yeah. risk, right? How can you do late seed and have 50% or more work. That's that's the conundrum to this model, right? Yeah. Now, you also, um, you talked a lot about governance um, and some of this, you know, the old days, we used to be, a, you know, the, the, like in Silicon Valley, the show, right? The the team is afraid that some um, idiot, C, you know, professional CEO is going to come in. Yeah. On the one hand, that, that fear provides some discipline in the market, but certainly in your own investing and the way Saster talks about it, Right. Like you want to back the founder to be the founder functionally forever. Um, yeah. How do you evaluate people's ability to go from zero to one and then from one to a thousand? Well, first, I'll, I'll answer the question directly before we get there. Obviously, if you have a smidge of traction, it helps. Right. Even if yeah. you're at even if you're, it turns out, even if you're as early as ten thousand dollars a month in recurring revenue, 
that or at least 10 15 customers it's it, believe it or not if you if you have life experience it's statistically significant it's telling okay so it does help to have a smidge of traction i would say beyond that the real question is you know the quality of the initial team of uh, it could be two and then this is the last one and i know this can they see the future i'm not talking about beating your hands on your chest and talking about how crypto will, will dominate the world or web seven. I'm talking about meeting a founder at say $10,000 a month in revenue. Then this has all happened with the best founders I've invested, the ones with billion dollar exits. They've all explained to me how their market will evolve over the next five to seven years, the next five to seven years. And that's what I look for. When I, when I look at my batch of CEOs, when I started, Peter Gassner, who ran Viva, which is at 30 billion, David Sachs, who ran Yammer at the time, Renee Lassert, who runs Bill, which is fintech-esque at 20 billion. They were the three best in my batch at Emergence Capital. We were all in the same class. It was a really good fund, really good north of 10X fund. And I was pretty good, but those three guys knew the future. Renee knew the future of billing for SMBs, right? David was was different, but he was so driven around this collaboration. And Peter Gassner, who was doing CRM for pharma, most of you haven't heard of it, but it's like a vertical version of Salesforce, wildly successful. He knew the whole future of pharma CRM, okay? All these guys well below a million in revenue. And that's what I look for. And the ones that stumble, the ones that mock the competition, the ones that don't know the competition, the ones that aren't sure about the markets, uh, 100% regret rate for investing in those, 100%. No matter what else looked good, right? No matter what else looked good. They know the future. And I'll tell you a slight, if you want to hear a story, it's someone with, that's a little bit toxic. But er, very early in my career, I met Travis Kalanick, who was CEO of Uber. And obviously, many of the things he did were toxic and unacceptable. But Uber is a big success, right? And before Uber, he was doing this other startup that didn't quite make it. And I met him for lunch with a friend. I didn't know who this guy was. I just got dragged to this lunch in Burlingame, California. And this was back in the day. He's like, Travis is like, I'm really into video on the internet. It's really early, but let me tell you how it's all going to transpire over the next five years. And he all described YouTube and where everything was going. And I'd never met a founder like this. I'm like, oh my God, like I know pretty good. This is, this is before I was even in SaaS, but he explained the whole future of video as it was just like VGA quality or CGA and the internet. My jaw just dropped out of this meeting. I'm like, I don't know anything, but like, you know, if I have $5,000, I want to invest in this guy. And you look for those guys that know the future, right? Um, right. And boy, that's just um, and that and that's why I've only had one investment in ten years where they brought in an outside CEO, and I resisted it. Ex even though the founders wanted to do it, I resisted it extremely hard, extremely hard, because I knew that there were some valid reasons to do it, but that they would never see the future the same way the founders did. They would never see the future of a very complex technical space the way the founders did, right? And um, so maybe maybe a long-winded answer to your question, but that's the power. Can they see the future? So we also talked about a lot of your advice is kind of around this idea of just showing up to the grindstone. And yeah. earlier, you know, you talked about a, a phase transition. At QED, we often talk about the return of Darwin to startups. Mm. So- yeah. What kind of advice are you giving to your companies? Like, how much should you bang your head against the wall? How much should you see the future and say, hey, this isn't working out. Let's shut this down. Let's give our capital back. Um, how do you navigate that? What's the what's the core advice? What should founders be thinking about as they go through this phase transition? Look, I think the let's step back for a minute. I think if as as investors, it's really hard to find great founders. 
people think you meet you meet a ton of good founders. Okay, you can talk to there aren't a trillion good founders, but you literally could talk to probably five really good, really good founders, nines every day. But I will tell you, I've been investing for 10 years. If I'm lucky, I meet one off-the-chart founder a month. One. People think there's a million, that you meet a million of these. You don't. They're hard to find. They're hard to find at the right time. They're hard to find at the right stage. They're hard to find when they're in market for capital. The ones where you know 20 minutes in, I, I call it the 20-minute test in venture. The best ones, almost everyone knows 20 minutes into the first meeting, they want to invest. They're that mm-hmm. good. You're lucky to meet one a month, and sometimes it's one a quarter, and sometimes it's one a year. So if a company has gone flat, the question is, did I invest in, in that, that a truly epically great founder? And that's why when Stuart Butterfield from Slack wrote Andreessen and said, I want to give you the money back, they, they thought about it. You can read the whole blog post they wrote about it. They thought about it. They didn't e- email back that second, but they said, you're one of the best we know. You keep going. Whatever you want to do, we have your back. And we don't all have Andreessen's money, and QED has a lot of money too. I don't have a lot of money, but that's my answer too. Like, I don't want my money back if you're great. It's too hard to find a great founder. But there have been two times, and I wish it had been zero. It, these, are, these are long learning cycles. There have been two times when the founders did not turn out to be great, right? Um, one never was great, was merely good, but with a lot of momentum. The other was great, but maybe got burnt out. Life is hard, right? This stuff's hard. Yeah. And I told them I told them I wouldn't go on. I told My recommendation to both was to return the capital. And I've never done, like this is recent. I've never told everyone, told, I told them just give the money back. Yeah. Like if you don't have it in you, if you can't, and, it, and it's about, and you know what the connection is? It's that they couldn't see the future for their space anymore. They could not see the future where it was going. They could paddle along, right? One of these companies had a couple million in revenue. One was pre-revenue. They could keep going on the mission. They could keep writing software. We can write software forever, right? But they didn't know the future anymore. And and take a month, take a quarter to see the future, to recalibrate, to see how it's changed, right? Because the the future does change, right? Um, It's like out of some Star Trek episode or Time Warp or something. The future does change. But if if you're great, you got to recalibrate to where the future is going. But otherwise, let's keep our money in, right? They're too rare. They're so rare. That's great. Well, Jason, this has been terrific. And I hope that uh, our listeners can see the future (laughs) as well as you do. (laughs) You want it in a boss and colleagues. You want it whoever you work with, don't you? That's the magic, the ones that could see the future, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You keep it in. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Jason. This is terrific. Yep. Thanks for all the time. This is great. What a whirlwind conversation. I hope we didn't lose our listeners on the financial metrics of logo retention, recurring revenue, gross margins, and free cash flow. This is capitalism after all. And especially in this market environment, you can see how investors have come back to focus on the question of how companies we invest in plan to make money. Jason's long experience has some tough lessons for investors and founders today. He argued that there was more fraud than we know in many of the startups funded over the past few years, and that investors, founders, and leadership teams need to focus on the reality of their businesses. As Jason says, we need people to count the beans, not manipulate a spreadsheet. At the same time, startups exist to create the future. And if you're thinking about starting something or joining someone else's startup journey, Jason's overriding lesson is to find people who can see that future before they set about to bring it into existence. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at 
Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>